Hello and welcome to Untangling Science, a podcast about science that's for everyone with me, Dara Ennis. You probably know me as the menace from ITV's quiz show The Chase, but my day job is as a scientist at the University of Oxford. In this podcast, I want to bring the world of science to people who think it's a bit too complicated to understand, but I'm going to make it fun and straightforward and easy to follow. We have a website, www.untanglingscience.com, and you can follow us on Twitter at Untanglings. I have a blog on the website that I leave useful information for each episode, links, diagrams. So check that out. It might make it easier to understand what we're talking about. This time, we're going to head back into outer space. and We're going to talk about some of the planets in our solar system. Now, there's far too much to cover in one episode, so this will be a two-parter. In this episode, we will talk about the planets closest to the sun, well, apart from Earth. So Mercury, Venus and Mars. Then in the next episode, we'll move into the colder parts of the solar system to consider Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune. I hope that sounds good. So let's start with the smallest of the planets, the one that's closest to the sun, Mercury. Now, for context, I'm going to talk a bit about the solar system. Now, the solar system is really big. I know you already think it's big, but it's even bigger than you think. From one side to the other is not far off 300 billion kilometers. Human brains are not really very good at handling massive numbers like this. It stops making sense after a while. So we're going to use some context and we can really appreciate how big it is. 300 billion seconds, just as an idea, is not really very far off 10,000 years. It's huge numbers we're talking about. Rather than throwing about giant numbers, we're going to use a bigger measurement of distance called an astronomical unit in these two episodes. That might sound a bit complicated, but it's just the average distance the Earth is from the Sun, and it's about 150 million kilometres. It takes light about eight minutes, eight and a half minutes or so to travel this distance, so it's a really big distance. But it's a good way to keep the numbers under control, and that's what I'm going to use, whether you like it or not. Now, let's get to Mercury. Humans have known about Mercury's existence for a really long time because it's visible. The first record we have dates back over 3,400 years to the Assyrian Empire. And this is because it is readily visible without special telescopes. It's quite simple to see if you know what you're looking for. In particular, it can be seen crossing between the sun and the earth in what is known as a transit. So you could see this dot crossing in front of the sun. But what is it actually like on Mercury? What's Mercury like as a planet? The closest planet to the sun is also the smallest, but surprisingly, it's not the hottest. You'd think so, but we'll get to that in a minute. It's on average 0.4 astronomical units from the sun. So it's about a little bit less than half the distance than from the sun to the Earth. Mercury is really small for a planet. Its diameter is just under 5,000 kilometers. That means it's actually smaller than some of the bigger moons in the solar system. One of the interesting things about the planets is that the closer they are to the sun, the faster they have to move. This is because the massive gravity of the sun draws any slowly moving object in towards it. So Mercury moves extremely quickly around the sun. It's almost 50% faster than the Earth does, and nine times faster than Neptune does. It's partly down to the speed of movement that Mercury got its name, because the god, the Roman god Mercury, was the messenger of the gods, and he flew around with wings handles. He was extremely fast. So this fast-moving object in the sky was named after Mercury. The speed and closeness of Mercury to the sun means that its year is actually incredibly short, just 88 Earth days. And Mercury takes much longer than Earth to rotate on its axis, so about 59 of our days. Now, I've quite deliberately not talked about a day on Mercury, as it's not as simple as the planet revolving, which it does in two-thirds of the year, as far as Mercury is concerned. That's not a coincidence that it's two-thirds, because Mercury is locked into what's called a tidal relationship with the Sun. Now, this sounds complicated, but luckily the Moon is very similar relationship to the Earth, which makes it easier to understand. 
because of the speed of the rotation of the moon, we always see the same side of it from the Earth. So you never see the other side of the moon from here. So while it's going around us, it's also spinning around and the same side of the moon points towards the Earth, if that makes sense. Mercury is similar to the sun, but what's that got to do with a day on Mercury? If you were to land a rover on Mercury and it could record the time it takes from noon on one day to noon on the next, it would actually take 176 days, Earth days, or two Mercury years. If you're still confused, check out the blog post for this episode. I've posted a nice animation that explains it all. But basically what happens is the planet keeps turning as it goes around and the same point of it basically faces towards the sun for a huge amount of time, for 176 days. So a day on Mercury, from the point of view of Mercury, is actually two years. Weird, huh? One of the things that these very long days result in is a really big temperature difference in between night and day areas on Mercury. During the day, so when these really long days happen and the sun is on one particular part of the planet, the temperatures go really high, up to about 420 degrees Celsius. But the nighttime side, so the side that isn't facing towards the sun, it can go as low as minus 170 degrees. It's a huge difference between the light and dark parts of Mercury. And one of the reasons for this, not just because it's close to the sun, is that Mercury has almost no atmosphere. The Earth's atmosphere is not just there to supply us with air to breathe. It also acts as an insulator that stops us from getting too cold and reflects some of the heat from the sun to stop us from overheating. As well as being either freezing cold or absolutely scalding hot, Mercury is a pretty barren place. It's covered in craters, much like our moon is, because there's no atmosphere to burn up any meteorites that hit it. And despite all these conditions, it's actually quite likely there is some water on Mercury, which seems a bit weird, but it's true. And there's strong indications that there's ice in some of the craters up near the permanently cold polar regions, so they never really get to see much sun. So much of what we know about Mercury comes from data collected by two different space probes. So in the mid-1970s, Mariner 10 was able to map almost half the planet's surface because it flew close by Mercury after it visited Venus. It made three close approaches, but the same face of the planet was close by each time, so it was only able to do a little bit less than half of the surface. But in 2008, another probe was sent. This was called Messenger. And that performed a flyby and was able to enter into orbit around Mercury. And this is where we get most of our information from. This was a much more sophisticated probe, obviously, because it was made much later. And it was able to map the surface of the planet in great detail, but it eventually crashed into the surface in 2015. Okay, that's a whole heap of information. So let's do a quick recap before we move on. The solar system is huge. It's absolutely immense. So for distance, we're going to use the distance from the Earth to the Sun, an astronomical unit. That's how we're going to measure things in this episode. As far as planets go, Mercury isn't all that big. It's actually smaller than some of the bigger moons in the solar system. It moves around the Sun very quickly. A Mercury year takes about 88 days. But weirdly, Mercury spins around about every 59 days. But because of how it revolves, a day on the surface of Mercury takes 176 days. So to go from noon one day to noon the next day takes 176 days. And that's actually twice as long as its year. So very unusual. Mercury has almost no atmosphere. um, So it doesn't regulate temperature, meaning half the planet, the one that's facing the sun, is extremely hot, while the dark side is really very cold indeed. And most of what we know in detail about Mercury comes from two NASA space probes, Mariner 10 and Messenger. Do we feel all caught up? Good. So, on to our next planet, Venus. Venus is the brightest and by far the hottest of all the planets. And both of these are pretty much for the same reason, its atmosphere. So despite being much further away from the Sun than Mercury, 0.7 astronomical units compared to Mercury 0.4, it is much hotter. And the reason for this is its atmosphere. So Venus is a completely runaway greenhouse gas atmosphere filled with carbon dioxide and it's covered with thick clouds made up of sulfuric acid. So not the most pleasant of places. 
because of all this, the temperatures on the surface are around 500 degrees Celsius, which is hot enough to melt lead. And it, unlike mercury, it's 500 degrees Celsius all the way around. Added to this, there's an immense pressure caused by this really thick atmosphere means it's about 90 times more pressure than it is on the surface of the earth, which is about the equivalent of being a kilometre under the sea, pressing down on you all the time. One other effect of the layer of thick clouds completely covering Venus is that it reflects a lot of sunlight back into space. This makes it one of the brightest things in the night sky. and It makes it very easy to see, and it's really easy to track from Earth. So this means it's been studied by humans very closely for over 4,000 years. The shining brightness of this planet was the reason why it was named after the Roman goddess of love and beauty, and throughout history it's been sacred to gods of lots of different religions. But not only is it easy to see from Earth, it also passes fairly close to us, well, in solar system terms. So it was the first planet we sent probes to. The Mariner 2 probe visited Venus as early as 1962, and the Soviet mission Venera 7 landed there in 1970, amazingly a year after the moon landings, the Soviets landed a probe on Venus and it became the first ever probe to successfully land on another planet. The unbelievably hostile environment meant that the probe didn't function for very long, so it got limited information, but the Magellan Orbiter in the 1990s was able to finally give us detailed information of the surface of Venus. There have been plans to send rovers onto the surface, but to be honest, that seems pretty unlikely because the conditions would mean they wouldn't last for very long, and it would be very hard to construct something that would be able to take those conditions. So a lot more energy has been dedicated to sending rovers to Mars, but we'll get onto that in a minute. In terms of size and general makeup of the planet, Venus is actually extremely similar to Earth. It's a rocky planet with a diameter of slightly over 12,000 kilometers, so a little bit less than 1,000 kilometers smaller than Earth is across. It's also been suggested that Venus at one point in its history had water oceans on its surface, but they've been lost due to the runaway greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. And some scientists like Carl Sagan have used Venus as a warning of what could happen to Earth should we not take care of things and should the greenhouse gases spiral much further out of control. So it could be a warning from history uh, as well as a planet in space. Now, despite the hostile environment, it's been speculated there may be life forms in Venus's atmosphere somewhere where temperatures are a bit cooler, but it's still very acidic. Now, we know on Earth that you can have really, really hostile environments like hot springs and, and things where you have some life forms. So there are ideas that this could also happen in Venus. And there were traces of certain gases like phosphine that are usually indicators of life that were detected in their atmosphere and everybody got very excited but those results have since been disputed and it's really far from conclusive but if there is life on venus it would have to be really tough because where they're saying it could be is in the middle of clouds of sulfuric acid so it would want to be a very very tough life form unlike earth venus has no moons and weirdly it spins the other way so the sun rises in the west it also has the longest day of any of the planets at 243 earth days while a trip around the sun takes 224 days so Its days are longer than its years, so another weird thing about Venus. And in recent years, we've learned a lot more about this very hostile planet because probes from the European Space Agency and Japan started orbiting and scanning the surface, and more missions are planned in the next decade. So soon enough, we'll know an awful lot more about Venus, but chances are we won't be landing there anytime soon. But now, that's enough about Venus. Let's move on to Mars, but first, a quick catch-up. Venus is super bright, and it's easily the hottest of all the planets in our solar system. This is because Venus has a runaway greenhouse gas atmosphere and it's made up largely of carbon dioxide covered by thick clouds of sulfuric acid. What this means is that the temperature of the surface is about 500 degrees and the pressure is like being a kilometre under the sea. Venus is very similar in size to Earth, but it has no moon and it spins the other way. 
And a day on Venus is longer than a year at 243 Earth days, while a year on Venus is about 224 Earth days long. Now we move on to Mars. This is a world that is really hugely different to Venus. Mars is about one and a half times as far from the sun as the Earth is, and unlike Venus, it doesn't have a thick atmosphere to trap heat. In fact, its atmosphere is incredibly thin. It was believed to have an atmosphere more similar to Earth's quite a long time ago, but this has been gradually stripped away. Part of the reason for this is that Earth has a strong magnetic field that helps retain its atmosphere. And Mars is something similar, but it seems to have been lost billions of years ago. This means that charged atoms in what is called the solar wind, so this is something that streams through space from the sun, is very gradually just pulling away and taking away atoms from Mars' atmosphere. So without a strong greenhouse effect to retain heat, Mars is actually quite a cold planet with average temperatures around 60 degrees below Celsius. But temperatures of up to 30 or 35 have been recorded, but the average is pretty low. As well as being cold, Mars is a dry, dusty planet, though this was not always the case. There is lots of evidence for large bodies of water on Mars at some point in its history, with detailed images of what is believed to be gullies and canyons carved out by flowing waters and glaciers. Some of these are absolutely vast. The one, the Madin Vallis, is 700 kilometres long and two kilometres deep, which kind of makes the Grand Canyon look a bit like a pothole in comparison. But what happened to all this water? It all goes back to Mars' atmosphere, which really is so thin that air pressure is absolutely extremely low. And what this means is that liquid water is very difficult for it to form because really low temperatures and really low pressures can still form steam. So any ice that melts is likely to just evaporate away and it just goes off into space. So as the atmosphere gets stripped away, water gets stripped away as well. So what water there is on Mars is usually in the form of ice, and there's actually quite a lot of it. The polar regions of Mars hold very large reserves of ice, and it's been estimated there's enough to cover the whole planet to over 10 metres deep. And there's believed to be massive underground ice reserves too, as big as the Great Lakes in North America. So there is quite a lot of ice on the surface. There's also ice in craters, and some of them are thought to be about two kilometres deep, such as the Korolev crater, filled with ice water. Another thing most people know about Mars is that it's red, and indeed it's this blood-red colour which is why it's named after the Roman god of war. This is because large amounts of iron in the soil has, you know, rusted effectively, and it gives it a rusty red colour. And the red dusty surface covers most of the planet, which is also covered in large impact craters, much like our moon is. Again, back to the thin atmosphere, it means the meteors that land on Mars don't get burned up by the atmosphere on entry, so they remain quite large. Really, we should be a lot more grateful for our atmosphere. It does an awful lot for us. But speaking of the moon, Mars has two of those. Uh, We are now far enough away from the awesome gravity of the sun that planets can have moons, and Mars's two are called Phobos and Deimos. These were twin suns of the god Mars's Greek equivalent Ares, and their names mean fear and dread. As moons go, they're actually pretty unremarkable. They're quite small, and they're only about 20 kilometres across, I think one, and the other one's 12 kilometres across. And they're not really quite round, they're a bit odd shaped. They also won't orbit Mars forever, because Phobos is expected to crash into the red planet in about 10 million years, while Deimos is eventually expected to drift into space. Mars's moons are much smaller than Earth, and so is the planet itself actually. It's about half the diameter of Earth, and gravity there is about 38% of what's found here. So also a day on Mars is slightly longer than Earth at just over 24 hours, while a year is about 687 Earth days. But despite these differences, conditions at the surface of Mars are easily the closest to what we find here on Earth in our solar system. And along with the presence of water ice, it makes it the only really plausible candidate for colonisation by humans. Because of these conditions and the hope of maybe landing some humans on it in the very near future, there's plans to start missions fairly soon. There's been a lot of missions to Mars, including landing several amazing robotic rovers. 
which I absolutely will be talking about. But before we go into that, quick recap. Mars is about one and a half times further from the sun than Earth. A day is a little bit longer than on Earth, and a Mars year is about 687 Earth days. Mars is cold, uh, about minus 60 degrees on average, and it has hardly any liquid water due to its very thin atmosphere. Mars at one point had lots of water, with many water-carved features on its surface, such as canyons and gullies. There's still quite a lot of ice on Mars, uh, especially in the polar regions and some underground. Mars has two quite small moons. Uh, One will eventually crash into the red planet and the other one is expected to drift away sometime in the future. Now, for the final part of the podcast, I always like to cover some research aspect of what we're talking about. And today it'll be research, but it won't be done by humans. It's largely done by robots. Now, we all know more about Mars than any other planet because, well, other than Earth, largely because what we, we've been able to send lots of research missions to not just orbit the planet, but to actually roam around on the surface. So for this section, I will ignore the ones that orbited Mars, because there's way too many to talk about. But I'd like to talk a bit about the wonderful rovers that have told us so much about the Red Planet. The first rover to land on Mars was the Sojourner rover, which touched down in 1997 as part of NASA's Pathfinder mission. It only weighed about 11.5 kilos, so this is about the weight of a normal-sized dog, but Sojourner was expected to complete seven days of operations on the Martian surface. It had two cameras and some basic scientific equipment. It, It really wasn't very large or sophisticated by comparison to the more modern rovers. In fact, though, this hardy little rover was able to keep going for almost three months, and it travelled about 100 metres before it stopped functioning. So in this short time period, Sojourner was able to carry out analysis of rocks and the Martian surface, give us some close-up images, and it really gave us a lot of critical information about the geology of Mars, and was able to let us think about the history of the planet, particularly about the history of water and how it was involved in rock formation. All of this data was transmitted by the Pathfinder lander, which was in the same mission, and if you saw the movie The Martian a few years ago, this is what Matt Damon's character used to communicate with NASA, and they used a replica provided by NASA, so it was very accurate. So that was what it looked like, the Pathfinder. The next rovers on Mars were Opportunity and Spirit. So these are twin rovers. They were sent at the same time and they were far more ambitious pieces of kit. So these weighed in at about 185 kilos, so about the weight of an adult lion. And Opportunity and Spirit landed on opposite sides of the planet in 2004, in January. And they had planned missions of about 90 Mars days. Spirit continued to function actually for about five years before it got stuck and it broke down and ceased communications with NASA. And that was in about 2010. And opportunity even more amazingly continued to work for 57 times its expected lifespan and only stopped communicating in june 2018 so really recently spirit traveled almost eight kilometers during its mission but opportunity managed a whopping 45 kilometers which isn't bad since they were both designed to actually travel about 100 meters each both of the rovers had much more sophisticated cameras and they were able to take really detailed panoramas of the Martian surface, as well as high resolution close-ups of rocks and geological formations. So they were able to analyse these rocks they've encountered and that told scientists quite a lot about the geology of Mars, about its previous volcanic activity and about the history of water on the planet, which is a recurring theme because it's a key factor in searching for evidence of life. Now, NASA significantly stepped up the sophisticated nature of the rovers with the next mission. And one I've been following personally on social media as Curiosity, as which the rover was, has its own Twitter account. On the anniversary of its landing each year, it plays happy birthday to itself. And so far, it has done that an amazing nine times, with the 10th actually only a few weeks away because it happens in November. So when I recorded this, that's only a few weeks from now. I know you shouldn't pick favourites amongst your children, but I'm quite happy to say that Curiosity is my favourite robot of all time, with Bender from Futurama a very close second. 
It's about the size of a small car, so significantly larger than the earlier ones. And it weighs about as much as a decent-sized walrus, so a much, much bigger enterprise. Curiosity touched down on Mars in November 2011, and like the other rovers, it has far exceeded its intended lifespan, and its two-year mission has basically been extended indefinitely, as long as it can keep going. It's equipped with an array of scientific instruments and cameras, and Curiosity is essentially a mobile lab that is remote-controlled from millions of kilometres away. Curiosity's mission was more focused on searching for potential signs of current or historical life than previous ones have, but it's still looking at physical, atmospheric and geological properties of the Red Planet. The rover's been able to take and analyse soil and rock samples, as well as studying the Martian atmosphere and potential water cycle. But Curiosity has not yet covered as much distance as Opportunity, because it's still only about 23 kilometres from its landing site, but it's been able to transmit way more data back to scientists on Earth, so it's been absolutely invaluable. The latest NASA rover mission to Mars is called Perseverance. It landed in April of 2021, so not that long ago, and its design is very similar to Curiosity, with one really super cool and notable addition, which is very appropriately called Ingenuity. Ingenuity, in case you didn't know, is a tiny helicopter that has to date made 12 flights on another planet. How cool is this? It is so, so amazing. Like, it's only 120 years since the very first powered flight, and humans now have an aircraft flying around on Mars. It's millions of miles away. This is just the most cool thing. So, Perseverance itself will add to the Curiosity mission, and it will help us better understand Mars, and it will also allow us to see the planet from the sky, thanks to its ingenious friend. How cool is that? Now, the very latest rover to land on Mars is not a NASA mission at all, but instead it's from the Chinese National Space Administration, and it's called Zhurong. My apologies to any Chinese listeners, I have no idea how to pronounce this, that's how it looks to me. Anyway, the rover landed in May 2021, so very soon after Perseverance, and it is quite a bit smaller than the latest NASA rovers, but the exact dimensions and weight are not very clearly known. The Chinese Space Administration doesn't release these kind of figures like NASA does. Zhurong has lots of cameras and cool scientific instruments on board, which it is using to analyse rocks and atmosphere of Mars, like the NASA rovers. Like Perseverance, Zhurong has ground-penetrating radar. Um, this is a really cool piece of technology. It's used on Earth a lot for surveying and archaeology to try and see what's going on underground without actually digging and excavating. And Zhurong's collected data will be used exclusively by Chinese scientists for the first six months. And after that, it's released to the general scientific community. So exactly what it has found isn't actually known yet, but it'll become public early next year. Well, that's it for this episode. I'd like to thank Neil from Podnote for editing this episode and all his advice on how to do a podcast because I'd be lost without him. Um, thanks also to Paul Farrer for his amazing original theme tune and music. The next episode, which will be on the other planets in our solar system, will be out soon. Please remember to subscribe and share the podcast if you've enjoyed it and leave comments and ratings wherever you get your podcast from. Thanks for listening.